week uh, in our study, the third one on the second coming of, of Christ, or what is called the second coming of Christ, we spent all our time in the Old Testament uh, looking at passages uh, dealing with judgment of various nations such as Babylon, Edom, Egypt, and other places. And the purpose for doing that was simply to note the language that was used in judgment situations. And we noted that it was characteristic of the people in that day when they spoke of judgment on nations or cities, they always thought of it in terms of God's wrath on that place. And they used language that sometimes in our society has been taken as literal, but really they, they obviously never understood it that way. And we noted that such passages as the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the shaking of the earth or the uh, burning with pitch or an everlasting fire that doesn't go out, that these would be used in terms of a judgment on a place when in reality those did not literally take place that way. It was figurative language uh, and it was understood by them uh, that when they talked in terms of the coming of God in judgment, they used terms like coming on the clouds. They never understood it in a literal way. It was a metaphor, and they just simply expressed his coming or his presence in, in that way. And we noted that uh, as we come into the New Testament, that in reality, the first century church never had a New Testament as we have. Uh, what they had is what we call the Old Testament Scriptures. And they simply produced the New Testament in that generation. And you can come all the way to the end of that generation and on to towards the end of the first century, and you will not find any church, to the best of my knowledge, that even has all the New Testament documents. And they're in the process of adding them. The people that are writing the New Testament documents, except for one person, are all Jews. Uh, their background is the Jewish Old Testament. And Luke himself, not a Jew, is writing, and he tells you that his information is coming from those that are eyewitnesses and studied in that particular matter. And he's given the, the history from eyewitnesses who were Jews. And so in reality, all of the New Testament uh, is a history of produced by Jews uh, written, spoken initially in the Aramaic language and spoken from the same culture that we have the, the Old Testament in. And we note that that's important when we come and look at the New Testament and, and look at certain judgment situations there. Another thing we had noted in the previous lesson is that in the New Testament, when it speaks of this uh, coming in judgment, Every time a time frame is given, it's always one that is in that generation, before he finishes going, before they finish going through the cities of Israel, while some of them were still alive, it was something that was near at hand, imminent, uh, something that they were to be alert for. Uh, there's no exceptions to that. If a time frame is given, it will always be an imminent type thing. In other words, it was a judgment situation that they were looking forward to in their lifetime. We also noted uh, some characteristics of different types of literature. 
And we noted that most of the New Testament is in the, of the is letters, such as all the writings of Paul, for example. And the very nature of letter is that it's it's addressed to a specific situation and is dealing with problems at that particular time. In other words, Paul is not sitting down when he writes Corinthians and trying to devise some theology for somebody two centuries down the pike or even 20 years down the pike. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he is dealing with them specifically on the problems that they have. When John writes Revelations, he tells you in the very introduction that he addresses it to the seven churches of Asia. And he even mentions specifically some of the problems of those seven churches. You can go to the map and identify each of those seven locations in Asia Minor, all within very close proximity of one another. And he addresses it specifically to those churches, and he does so from within a context where he speaks of those events as near at hand and imminent and, and something that is that they're going to look forward to. And he writes as an individual that is being persecuted and has been banished to the Isle of Patmos because of the persecution. And he's writing to people that are being persecuted. All right, we noted in the same way when the letter of the Hebrews is written. The Hebrew writer is addressing a specific problem. He's not just setting down a doctrine for us in the 20th century. We may very well have one when we put all this together. But that's not his purpose in writing. He is addressing a specific need, and that is Jewish converts to Christianity, who as a result of the severe persecution are going back into Judaism or back into the world and are leaving Christianity. And so his concern is to motivate these people to re-examine their thinking. They have completely, some of them, abandoned the assembly of themselves together. And he's trying to get them to re-examine their thinking. And then he talks about this situation that they're all involved in together and the relief uh, that they all expect together. This is true also with uh, the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul is writing each of those letters to a church that we read of its establishment in Acts, the 17th chapter, and it was established under severe persecution by Jews trying to stamp out Christianity. They ran Paul and the others out of town, followed them into Berea, and they actually followed them around and tried to hinder their preaching to the Gentiles. Paul is concerned about this church, and so he writes back to them as an individual who is himself being persecuted, to people who are being persecuted and writes to them concerning their common salvation and an imminent judgment situation uh, that on the one hand is going to bring wrath to their persecutors and the other hand relief uh, to those who are being persecuted. And so when we look at the, the context of the letters, that's the context they're written in. And we noted that, that a mistake may be in study in the New Testament or any of the letters is this idea of thinking of them in terms of chapters and verses and sitting down and studying them in small parts, that they were not written in chapters and verses. They were written as a letter, and they were intended by the original recipients to sit down and simply read uh, that entire letter. Uh, and, and this is true with each of the works of, of the New Testament. All right, not only were they written as a letter, but they were written within a time frame. Uh, for example... First and Second Peter were 
both written before 64 AD. Peter was killed uh, in the 60s, uh, and he even tells you that he knew that his death is imminent, and Jesus told you that Peter would die uh, a very violent death. Uh, secular tradition traces the death of Peter and Paul at about 64 AD. So Peter writes, and that means when you read his two letters, you read them as two letters written in the 60s. Well, and you say, well, what is happening uh, between 60 and 64 in, in that period of time? And on the one hand, the, the Christians are being severely persecuted by Jews. On the other hand, the emperor in Rome is Nero. Uh, Nero came on the throne in 54. He reigned until 68. Nero was the first emperor of Rome to set up a persecution of Christians. An unofficial persecution of Christians. He was the one that uh, uh, had cruci Christians crucified. He put them in the arena and turned animals loose on them. Uh, he lit his own garden with burning Christians. Uh, what he did was so bad that even the, the Roman historian, Tacitus, who definitely was not a Christian, had sympathy for the Christians and thought that Nero was only satisfying his own cruelty in all his persecution of them. So when you read First and Second Peter, you read it as an apostle writing to a group of people that have been persecuted, and he himself is on the verge of going to his death. And you also know that just a couple of years afterwards, Israel and Rome will go to war, and it will culminate in the defeat of Rome or defeat of Israel in, in 70 AD. When you read Thessalonians, you read them as something written in the latter 50s AD. When you read Romans, the 50, when Romans, the 50s, when you read Corinthians, the 50s, when you read Galatians, somewhere around 49 or 50 AD. So all of these letters are written before the war between Israel and Rome, and at a time when the number one persecuting force against the church is Israel. Now, up until recent years, in fact, even now, if you pick up a traditional Bible and it has an introduction to the individual books and it gives a date, you'll find that all the parts of the New Testament will be dated before 70 AD uh, when uh, Jerusalem is destroyed, Rome defeats Israel. The exception to that is the writings of John. And it's, it's simply dated somewhere around 95. Some people will put the Gospel of John at about 80 or 85. But his will be the only writings. But although this was the case, all through the centuries, there have been absolute top scholars that have placed all of John's writings before 70 AD. In recent years, with the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 and all the information that come forth, we've reached a point now where the majority of modern scholars place all of the writings of John also before 70 AD. The best recent workout on it is a book called Redating the New Testament by A.T. Robinson, where he puts all the books in the New Testament before 70 AD and also handles the various arguments uh, concerning John having been put after that. By the way, uh, there was a time when even First and Second Peter were put in the second century, and, some, and, and Timothy and, and Titus also put up later. And it has been the archaeological discoveries that have come about in the past century 
that have put all these materials back, and I'm not saying that it wasn't back before there by the top scholars, but I'm saying put them back with empirical evidence before 70 AD. This same, these same archaeological discoveries have also put the books of the Old Testament in the way that they are written, uh, as opposed to the liberal scholars who pulled them further away uh, from their source and towards Christ for many years. So suffice it to say that archaeological discoveries have really enhanced our understanding of being able to sit down and date the books and put them in a precise setting. So when you read a book, any letter, that initial letter, if you're reading 1 Peter or Corinthians or whatever the letter, that letter was written to be read right then and the people of that day would understand it. Now, if that was the case, why is it that today you and I cannot just sit down and pick up 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or 1 Peter, etc., and just read it and come to an accurate understanding of everything that's there and fully understand it. I mean, if you have just the Bible, uh, why is it that you cannot do it? Or does anybody believe that you can? Why is it the original recipients who just, they'd read the letter and they'd understand it? No problem whatsoever. And yet, uh, we get the Bible and we, we get multitudes of commentaries out. Uh, we go to encyclopedias. We go to dictionaries. We go to geography books. Uh, and although you may not do all that uh, as an individual, I guarantee you that uh, the, within all the groups, the, the guys that preach, the ones that study, that before they get up there, they have checked those sources uh, before they get up there, in, in most cases, before they say a lot of the things that they say. And sometimes uh, they'll say things without checking the sources and be sorry afterwards that they didn't. But wh why is that the case? Anybody want to open up on that? Why do you... Why is it that uh, on the one hand the Bible contains all truth as given by the Holy Spirit, but on the other hand, unlike the initial recipients, you couldn't just sit down and read it and readily and easily understand it? Okay. That one thing you mentioned last week was that we read it as if it were written to us. Right. And not, which is tied in what David said. Well, why can't we do that? I mean, I mean, I don't believe that we can, but just from the, you know. Well, we're so far removed from the life and time. Well, what I'm saying is a person who believes that belief, then, you know, how, how can you, how, I mean, I mean, I know you can say, well, this was written to a specific church and so. and so forth, but how do you convince them that they can't study the Bible that way? Okay. The, what I generally do is give some examples like, uh, uh, I'll use the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers, etc. And I'll say, now look at the Gettysburg Address. You and I read it with just very good understanding. You know, nobody has to explain it to us or anything. We understand it. But can you imagine reading the Gettysburg Address if you haven't first be, become aware of the Civil War and what has taken place there and that our country is involved in a great Civil War and the reason for that war, and if you did not know about the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence and things like that, Lincoln gives that address and nobody had to open up a dictionary or any other sources in order to understand it. But you and I today could not sit down and understand the Gettysburg Address 
unless we did some reading about the Civil War, we knew about that, did some reading about that battle they just fought, we knew something about the Revolutionary War, we knew about the Independence. Now, after we do that reading, then we can read the, the Gettysburg Address with the same understanding of anybody else. But until then, in other words, you can understand the words, and you can understand what he's saying, but you don't understand what all is involved in, in those statements. And you could use uh, uh, the same thing with any other document. Uh, for example, on language, uh, uh, if you read Shakespeare, uh, there's a lot of Shakespeare that could not be understood fully unless somebody is going to do some research and deal with the characters and the language and the custom that, that he is involved in. Uh, you, that Chaucer would be an impossibility, uh, that uh, it would be Greek to you. Uh, unless you went by, unless you knew something about how the English language had evolved and changed over the years, and something about the the customs and all of that day. So I'm saying the very people that would say that, Mark, you can show to them that in all secular material they already recognize that. Uh, they know, for example, that if you don't watch the the evening news every night, or, or at least regularly, we'll say. And so if you go three weeks and you just pop in with the evening news. There's going to be some things on the evening news you cannot understand because you won't have the background, you know, the build up to it. But somebody that has been watching it on a regular basis, they will just readily understand all parts of it. But what has happened is that people want to approach the Bible different than any other book. There's, there's this uh, attitude that it's from God, and, and, and the, the, see, the teaching on some groups is that the Holy Spirit gives you the understanding. And so that you read, and then through the gift of the Holy Spirit, you come to understand that. And I'd say, for example, uh, most of the Pentecostal and holiness groups that I'm familiar with have that conviction that, uh, you know, it's the, that the Holy Spirit gives them an understanding. Uh, a good example of uh, not doing what we're talked about is those that believe that people can have miraculous gifts now that... Uh, if you have any of you had any experience of sitting down with somebody that believes that and and dealing with their passage in First Corinthians, and you try to explain them that hey now Paul wrote to that church, and during the time he wrote to them the apostles were alive, and they had the ability to lay hands on people and impart these miraculous gifts, and they didn't have the New Testament, and so God was speaking to these people. But eventually you would have the complete New Testament, and you go on and you explain it from that background. But my experience has been that so many times they'll, they'll look at you like uh, you're trying to explain the Bible away. You know, that, uh, that it, if it doesn't mean what it says and says what it means, then I don't know what it means. You know, and it's like that, uh, and they'll say things like, God is the same today as he was then, so is the Lord, and therefore it just has to be. But what they're really doing is that they're reading 1 Corinthians as if Paul was writing that letter to them. And that they should therefore have those... Uh, those miraculous gifts in, in that way. Uh, what is true there, I'm saying, is, is true with this subject we've been studying, just as any other subject, that uh, it cannot, and I know that uh, what happened to me when I read it the first time as a young person, that uh, first of all, I read it from the King James Bible, and it said the end of the world. So my mind was prepared from some talk about the end of the world. I, can know, I knew also that he was saying about Jerusalem, because he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know. So he said, in my mind, uh, I've got Peter asking the question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? 
So I went through there and everything that involved directly Judea and uh, the city of Jerusalem and, and things like that and where it said all these things will happen in this generation. I thought, well, that has to be Jerusalem. But I also had it in my mind, I was looking for the end of the world. So then when I read the passages about the sun and the moon and the stars and, and those type things, then I said, well, that has to be the end of the world. So I had him, uh, in other words, uh, I was, the, and what happened in, in, our, in the church, and I, by that I mean Christendom as a whole, the King James Bible was our Bible in the English language uh, with no alternatives uh, for a literal multitude of years. And so people would read that, and they had that immediately injected in their mind. And so then they just looked at it both ways. Well, then they heard it preached, you know, in that particular way. Well, then as they read through the letters, just like me, if at any time it had a, a passage where it was an imminent type thing, uh, I knew it was something dealing with that at that time. But then when the language uh, did not say imminent within that those verses, and it involved this figurative thing with the Son of Man coming in the cloud and all, I was taking that literal, you know, and, and that's the way we sung songs and everything like that. So I went through in that way, and that's the way that uh, most of the sermons were preached and, and presented. And like I said initially, that what initially uh, caught my attention was in the field of Christian evidences and reading uh, the evidences against the inspiration of the Bible. And then... Uh, when I went back to school at Lipscomb, I had been to Freed Hardman, went in the Marine Corps for four years, and then went back to Lipscomb. And that's when I, for the first time, started to use something other than the King James Bible. And so I got there, and, uh, and they were using, at that time, the New American Standard Version. And so right away I picked up on the fact that, it, hey, it doesn't say the end of the world, it says the consummation of the age. And then, of course, you go to Vine's Expository Dictionary, and you began to get a feel for what's you know, what they thought of in, in, that, in that particular term. Uh, I got to show you the importance of the, of the way it's been as an argument for unbelievers. This is a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. It's written from a, uh, as a, an attempt to answer skeptics who have denied most of the historicity of, Je historicity of Jesus and the Inspiration Bible. And so then here is a, a believer trying to reconcile these things. It says, among the sayings put in the mouth of Jesus, which must be rejected as impossible, are the promise in the discourse of the sending forth of the twelve of the imminent coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 10, 23. That's where he says, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. Notice he says that these are sayings of Jesus which have to be rejected as impossible. The promise to the disciples that they should sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The saying about his, uh, his return. The final astrological saying of the Last Supper. The papius-like chiliism of which is unworthy of Jesus. And the prediction of his coming in the clouds of heaven with which he closes his messianic confession before the council. The apocalyptic discourses in Mark 13. Matthew 24, that's what we've read, and Luke 21 are interpolated. A Jewish Christian apocalypse of the first century, probably composed before the destruction of Jerusalem, has been interwoven with a short exhortation which Jesus gave on occasion when he predicted the destruction of the temple. All right, do you see what he's saying? 
here is a believer that's trying to deal with a skeptic who has put forth the argument that you Christians are preaching that Christ is coming again, uh, coming on the clouds, uh, coming in judgment, and you've been doing this for 2,000 years. And, he's, and, and the skeptic has said, look, every single one of these passages in context have a time frame of in that generation and during your lifetime and said that you people are simply not being honest with it. So then this, as you can see, this is a very old book. And so here is a believer before the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, in the latest archaeological discoveries, who's trying to figure this out. So do you see what he has to do to try and reconcile this? He goes back and he's, he takes these statements and says, obviously, Jesus could not have made these statements. So what I believe happened is that after Jesus, these Gentile Christians uh, may come up with these statements and they, they took their own opinions and put them in the mouth of Jesus. And so it's not Jesus' fault that that didn't come true. All Jesus ever talked about was the destruction of Jerusalem. But then these people have, have taken it further than that. But do you see how that in trying to handle the guy's argument, he couldn't handle it with the context itself because of the interpretation that he had and was prevalent. So therefore he has to say that this, there's no way this could come from Jesus in order to try to deal with the skeptic. But in the process, he really takes away from the New Testament as any kind of an inspired document. It begins to look bad. All right, now, listen to this statement then. Uh, the expectation of his second coming repeatedly expressed by Jesus towards the close of his life is on this hypothesis authentic. It was painted over by primitive Christian community with colors of its own eschatology in consequence of the delay of the perusal. Now, the perusal simply is the Greek word for his coming. Uh, the eschatology has reference to anything dealing with the judgment and the end of time. Uh, in view of the mission of the Gentiles, a more cautious conception of the nearness of time commended itself. Nay, when Jerusalem had fallen and the signs of the end which had been supposed to be discovered in the horrors of the year 68-69 had passed without result. The return of Jesus was relegated to the distant future by the aid of the doctrine of the gospel must first be preached to the heathen. Thus the perusal, or the second coming, which according to Jewish-Christian eschatology belonged to the present age, was translated to the future. With this combination and, and making coincident, they were not so at first hand of the second coming and the end of the world and the last judgment. The idea of the second coming reached its last and highest stage of its development. Okay, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that, yes, Jesus said these things, and that he was coming, and etc., etc. And that, but what happened after the event of the destruction of Jerusalem, right after Jesus, you've got these Gentile Christians, you know, they've been converted. And so they look at this and they say, well, sure, Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was judged, but he did not come back on the clouds. He did not appear so that every eye saw him, as it says in, 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 in Acts 1. And, and all of these uh, uh, tremendous events, like the sun and the moon and the stars and all, that didn't occur. So what they did, they worked out an interpretation 
and put it into the future. So what he's pointing out, that from the standpoint of the earliest Christians, uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem and the preaching of the apostles, Jesus, the apostles, and the early Christians knew only a coming in judgment in their generation. That's all they knew. That's all they looked forward to. And the judgment took place on Jerusalem and all. All right? Then coming right after that, Gentile Christians converted, look back and are studying the teaching of Jesus, and they say, well, sure, he come in judgment, but he didn't literally come on the clouds. Uh, these big events in the sky did not take place. Uh, he didn't appear so that every eye could see him. Therefore, that part of his teaching must have been in the future, and so they began at that point. And so I'm saying it wasn't until after the death of all the apostles when Gentile Christians go back and are reading that material, come to a conclusion that those things did not meet their literal fulfillment. In other words, they were thinking of them in terms of literal fulfillment. Therefore, they relegated them to the distant future. And that's where, and then down through the, notice he said, then it began to develop. Well, then he points out that this begins to develop through the years. Well, see, from the standpoint of the liberal theologian, he has no problem with that because he looks at, at people today, Christians having the Holy Spirit in the same sense they have then. And he believes that these ideas just simply uh, develop over the years. So he has no problem whatsoever with something completely developing that's different than what they had in the first century. All right, now, read you a couple more statements. This is Hastings' uh, Dictionary of the New Testament. This is a four-volume set. This one here deals with eschatology from Christ's standpoint. And then I've got another one that I won't get into for lack of time, deals with the apostles. Speaking of Jesus, we have seen that Jesus did not disassociate himself from the traditional view that the end would come in the form of a catastrophic transformation culminating in the event of the Messiah himself who would come from heaven. He seems rather, rather everywhere, both by the assumptions and by direct references of his language to set a seal to this view. All right, now what he's pointing out is that the Jews in the day of Jesus were looking forward to the Messiah to come. and But before he would start his reign, there would be a judgment. And then his reign would begin. And they pointed out that Jesus did not disassociate himself. He came and he made it clear that the kingdom of God would come with power. There would be a judgment situation. And then the reign would begin. Okay. He adhered to the catastrophic view of the final event. Okay, now, he steadfastly contemplating a final wonder of the destruction and restructuring of what should be the consummation of the kingdom, or its perfect establishment on earth. The final wonder would be accomplished within the term of that generation, then living. Okay, and he's pointing out that this is what Jesus believed, that he thought all of this was going to come about in that generation. Notice his comment about Jesus. Either he was mistaken... Are such texts as Mark 9, 1, that's where he said he would come in his glory when those alive were still living, are false reports. It can hardly be doubted that Jesus uttered words which were naturally understood by those who heard them and by others to whom they were reported to mean that the final wonder or second coming of man in Daniel's vision and age-long expectation would happen within their own generation. It is inconceivable that an expectation so confident and definite could have 
rested on anything but a definite reminiscence of the words of Jesus which seemed capable only of, one, of only one interpretation. Is it then possible to justify such sayings as Mark 9, 1 and 13, 30, I will come in this generation, apart from the blunt avowal that Jesus labored under an illusion and that he transmitted the illusion to his immediate followers, not only before his death and resurrection. All right, you see what he's saying there? He's saying that uh, either Jesus said this or the writers have falsely given him credit for saying it. But he said that you cannot explain the early church's strong belief in this on a universal basis except he said it. So therefore, the only conclusion can be is that Jesus actually labored under the illusion that after his death that he would come in judgment in the world. In other words, he was wrong is, 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 is the way he's dealing with this. Okay, this has been felt, notice now the statement now, this has been felt to be among the most difficult questions of historical Christology, and various types of solution to the problem are still presented by, represented by leading authorities. Okay, okay, now, here's an interesting thing to my mind as I went back and studied the things involved with this. So many times, what I have heard preachers get up in the pulpit and preach in a dogmatic way as if that this is just only one way, it's so plain that you couldn't even see it any other way. That when you get into the business of reading the scholarship behind it, you find out it's not that way at all. In other words, the scholarship never has believed uh, that those are passages applied to the uh, end of the world in, the, in a future sense. In other words, all scholarship, believers and unbelievers now, believing and unbelieving scholarship have acknowledged that yes, all these judgment situations, Jesus said them, and they were to come about in that generation. There's no getting away from this. Every last one of them. So then what has happened is the unbeliever has used that as an evidence against the inspiration of the New Testament. The believer has tried to handle that in various ways, and each way takes away from the Bible itself and also from Jesus down, down, down through the centuries. All right? Then for preachers to get up in the pulpit using a King James Bible, many times illiterate of the Greek, not having checked it out or anything like that, and then just proclaim that like uh, this is uh, he preached the end of the world, and what he's really talking about here is both the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world, and that uh, every time it has a time frame, it's Jerusalem. When it doesn't have a time frame, it's end of the world. There was absolutely nobody in the time of Jesus or during the lifetime of the apostles that believed that. That whole thinking came about by Gentile Christians later on, and as a result of their interpretation, it became an argument by unbelievers against the inspiration of the Bible. So I'm saying that the problem's not in the Scripture. The problem was the, the interpretation of Gentile Christians afterwards who took figurative language in a literal way and therefore tried to relegate that to the future. But then when they tried to relegate it to the future, you had their unbeliever holding their feet to the fire and saying, no, you're not going to do that. That, that we're not dumb. Let's go back and look at the context. And they go back and look at the context, and without exception, every time you nail down the context, 
you're always talking about something that was imminent and in that in that particular gen in that generation. Now, another thing that uh, that I think of all those that dealt with it, I've, there's a whole lot of material on it. Uh, one of the most complete sources that I've read is was Foy Wallace Jr. But he points out that until he studied it himself and got back in the history of it and all, that he number one never realized how big it was the, to to the early church, the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. That uh, when you read the New Testament, you and I sit down and read the New Testament. We read it as people in the 20th century in, in America where the number one dominant religion is Christianity. Are our forefathers read it from a Christian background? Are they read it from a European background where the dominant religion was Christianity? Okay? But when these guys wrote, Christianity was not the dominant religion of the world. It was a little bitty sect within Judaism. And that's all it was. It was a very, it, just like Jesus spoke of the kingdom and compared it to a mustard seed that would grow. But at this time, it was a little sect within Judaism. Rome actually looked at it as part of Judaism. And so it is actually a small sect within Judaism, and the Jews are doing all they can to stamp it out. And it will only be after Jerusalem is destroyed. In other words, up until this time, the dominant religion representing Jehovah is Judaism. And Judaism is saying that Jesus was a false messiah. And they're doing everything they can to stamp out Christianity. But all the time they're trying to destroy Christianity and saying that Jesus is a false messiah, the Christian ministers are preaching the downfall of fleshly Israel, that they're going to be judged, the city is going to be judged, and that all these things, just like the Lord has said, would happen to those. In this, in this great downfall that came, all of the statements of Jesus and the apostles were vindicated, their prophecies were fulfilled, the persecution of Christians ended uh, on a, in the severity of what they were having. Then Judaism was no longer to be a force against Christianity. After that judgment, Christianity would be vindicated as the people of God. The Jews would become a hiss and a byword. They would be scattered over the earth. They would lose their temple. They would lose their city. Christianity would go out and conquer the world. And from that day to this, Christianity has done absolutely nothing except grow. And Judaism has never been since that day anything except a very small group of people that no longer are they not a persecuting force against Christians. Judaism really would not exist if it were not for Christians. It, it has been Christians uh, with their, out of the goodness of their heart and their, their desire for the Jews to be one to Christ that have played a part all through the years in, in actually keeping Judaism alive. The, the nation of Israel would not exist over today if it were not for Christians in this country and, and Great Britain that aided the establishment and start of it. Okay, any uh, observations, comments over anything we've covered thus far in the whole study? How is your belief in this pertinent to your salvation one way or the other? Okay, that's a good question, David, because I think that if that thing, question you just made were dealt with in a right way, there would be no real emotion or hard feelings or anything in studying this or any other subject that was taught right or wrong or anything. I do not believe that salvation is predicated on theological rightness on every point. 
the apostles, when they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and in Christ, did not understand that the Gentile was to be an equal heir with them. And they fought it tooth and nail. Uh, many of the, you know, the Jewish Christians and everything. In the early church, 16 years after Pentecost, they're still trying to bind circumcision. As a, as a, you know, and, and, and they're being, they're arguing. They're still trying to bind these Jewish days and Jewish rituals on people, and they're arguing about it and debating about it. In Acts 15, when they, they have this great debate in the early church over circumcision of the law of Moses, the church is 16 years uh, into its birth. Everybody comes in as a babe in Christ, and you grow from that point. Salvation is predicated on absolutely nothing, I don't believe, except your repentance of your sin and your trust in Jesus. For, your, for, for the remission of your sins. That trust expresses itself in your acknowledgement with your mouth of Him as Lord and your identifying with His death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. That makes you a babe in Christ. And, and there's all kinds of things you don't know. And so then, you just simply grow all your life and all your life you're going to be learning and coming to a better understanding. Uh, there's going to be times when you find out that you were wrong on something that you believed back here. Uh... And then there's going to be a lot of things you find you were right on, you know, but that's going to be going on all your life. And it's not just on doctrinal thing. It's on your everyday experience uh, that there will be things that as a young person that you maybe will do in all good conscience and not bat an eye. And after you've been a Christian 10 years, you might say, hey, I can't, I can't do that in good conscience. And you'll change. Well, you weren't lost if you were doing it in good conscience back here and you had your trust in the Lord, you weren't lost. I think that is, the salvation is, is absolutely the most important thing to understand. And I think if we understood it, then we would have an atmosphere when we came together that we could study doctrines without people getting so emotional and, and mad and things like that. Because the, the, the reason that happens is people that think that salvation is predicated on being right on every point, heaven and hell is always hanging in the balance on them. And they need to know that you're saved because of Jesus and being in Him. And you've got time to learn and develop all your life. And the Creator of the universe is not going to send you to an eternal separation from Him because you don't understand something. So, you're not, so you shouldn't really judge other people as Christians just because of their doctrinal beliefs? I'm saying, now there's different doctrinal beliefs. Okay, the, uh, For example, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a doctrine and you couldn't be a Christian without believing that. The deity of Jesus is doctrinal, and you couldn't be a Christian without believing that. Uh, and so that uh, the, uh, and when you embrace him, uh, to be a Christian by definition is to say that you believe you ought to strive to emulate him in your life. And, and so that, uh, that there's no way a person can be a Christian and not embrace those things. But there are a lot of teachings within the Bible that involves study and interpretation. And that I don't believe that anybody is going to lose their soul who is unwillfully wrong on any of those points. In other words, uh, take some of the things that we do. Uh, I partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Uh, and I'm convinced from my study of history that the, you know, the early church you know, met on the first day of the week and take the Lord's Supper. If some individual doesn't understand that. In other words, they, they said, well, the Lord said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And so that they're doing it uh, once a month or whatever like that, I may differ with them. 
But I can understand, given their background and where they're coming from, why they believe that. And I think some very, very dedicated and sincere people believe that. I mean, they're not willfully sinning or anything like that. If they didn't believe, they wouldn't do it at all, you know. So if it turns out, let's say for the sake of argument, that it turns out that I'm right and they're wrong on that, I don't believe that a person's going to lose his soul on something like that. If it turns out that they're right and I'm wrong, I don't believe that anybody's going to lose their soul on that point. Now, if a person is willfully wrong, in other words, that he says that, uh, you know, I know the Lord wants me to do this and I'm not going to do it. Well, that's rebellion. And, I, and there's plain scriptures that deal with all of that. The same with the instrumental music. Uh, we don't use it. Again, we don't use it because as we study history, we, we can actually show that uh, it was about seven centuries after the church that instruments were introduced into Christian worship. But there's no direct laws or anything of that nature in the New Testament that, that deal on it one way or the other. So we say, well, since there's nothing on it, let's be on the safe side and don't use it because you don't have to use it. And somebody else says, well, it doesn't say he's going to lose his soul on, on that point. In other words, that's what the blood of Christ is, is all about. And there may be any number of things. In fact, it's interesting that uh, within uh, uh, the fellowship that we've been a part of, Try and think of some of the differences. You were brought up within the church and all. Some of the differences that we have on doctrines where we don't allow it to affect our fellowship and recognize that uh, it doesn't affect the person's eternal destiny if his attitude is wrong. Some of the differences that we have within our own churches. Within the church cross. Whether or not yeah. you can drink or not. Okay, social drinking. Now, we're, we're all in agreement that drinking to be intoxicated is, is wrong. Correct? Because the Bible makes a plain statement. It says sobriety and condemns drunkenness. But then, when it comes to the social drinking, or somebody that would say have a glass of wine, but not become intoxicated, there have always been differences among Christians in that area. Okay? Personally, I don't drink at all, and I advocate against it, and I can make some arguments. But if this fellow does... It's not something that I would break fellowship, but I'd let him know that I differed with him. And, and I think his own conscience would determine. In other words, here again, if you take somebody, say you're in Europe uh, as a missionary in Germany. Uh, I lived in Germany for three years when my father was stationed in the military over there. Everybody drank over there. I mean, when they sat down and had a meal, they had a glass of wine. And they didn't look on it in the way that Americans did. You know, they just drank a glass of wine with their meal. I don't even know what would happen if you tried to preach the gospel over there and say that you couldn't drink wine, you know, that at, at all. You know, I just don't know what would happen in that kind of situation. So that's an example of where there's differences, but yet we all recognize that what is condemned is drunkenness. What's another one? It's like Dancing. That one? Huh? Dancing. Dancing's one, okay. We would all, for example, again, with dancing... We would all agree that when it gets into the realm of lasciviousness, which is indecent, wanton mannerisms, that that would be wrong. We would all agree on that. But then when it comes to, let's say, the a typical square dance or some of the fun type things, you've got some people that say dancing is wrong, period. You've got others that say as long as it does not involve lasciviousness and it's done in fun and that there's no lust being provoked or anything, that's okay. Well, we have always allowed differences on that and and in, in that in that particular area and let's say that this uh 
person is wrong on, on that particular point. Well, again, if he has a good conscience on the matter and he's sincere, that he's, you cannot feel guilt unless you believe you're wrong, right? So there's no way, in other words, you can't expect a person to, to feel guilt unless he believes he's wrong on the point. But that's an example. What's another one? Mixed women, same thing. Uh, uh, there are those, uh, for example, uh, I would be considered a square uh, in the circle today. I do not believe that men and women who are not married should put on bathing suits and get out uh, together. You know, I, I do not myself. The... I believe that the male is very visually oriented, and I don't believe a young male personally can be in that kind of situation and, and not be provoked. Uh, in, in his mind. I think it's very difficult for a young male to be in that situation not be provoked. So I feel that way, and, I'll, and when we deal with it in classes, you know, I'll voice my thinking on it, but it says modest apparel, and it leaves room for interpretation. So I've never recommended... Uh, withdrawing a fellowship on something like that. In fact, I look at a person that would feel the other way. Generally, I look at them as like, well, they're young, uh, they're new Christians, or they're immature. I'm saying that's the way I would feel, and that maybe in a few years they'll change their thinking on that. But I would look at, uh, but by the same token, uh, you know, that I wouldn't make it a matter of fellowship, even though myself, my girls, at least when they was home, I don't know how they, you know, all they're all up and out now, but they never went swimming in a situation like that or nor did they wear short shorts in public or or anything like that and so there are areas where we differ but we allow that in the in the judgment realm and in each of those areas you will have young people who will make strong statements about social drinking the shorts the mixed bathing and put seven or eight or nine or ten years on them and sometimes they're on the other side making strong statements the other way you know, so the, what what I really see is just a growth then in the in the person. What's another one? Right. The uh, in fact, what happened is there were some that tried to make that a matter of fellowship, didn't they? And they wound up pulling off from everybody else. And, right. There again, if they had understood the principle of of salvation in Christ and all, I don't believe that would have ever happened. They, they have an understanding of salvation that involves being exactly right or what they believe is right on every point. But to answer it, Mark, I believe we could sit here and name all kinds of things. Being in the Masonic Lodge, you see that uh, there's always been different. Uh, can a Christian engage in carnal warfare? Uh, I was a new Christian when I went in the Marine Corps. By the time I finished four years in the Marine Corps, I was a conscientious objector. I had come to the conclusion that that I could not be a Christian and in the Marine at, at the same time. And so what happened if I was shot and killed while I was in the Marine Corps? Would I have been lost? I, I don't believe so. You know, I was sincere. And, and, and I was brought up in a military family. My stepfather is a, was a career soldier. And so I didn't give it a second thought when I went in the Marine Corps. And it was only as I studied and compared what I was studying with the life I was living and re-examined the situation that I thought, I just don't know about this being a Marine and a Christian at the same time. It's very difficult. So there are any number of things like that. But no, I don't believe, even though I do not personally believe that Jesus will ever come back on a cloud, literally, and, and that people will literally rise up or anything like that. I don't believe it has anything to do, in other words, I don't believe anybody's going to lose their soul. If I'd have died when I believed that, I wouldn't have lost my soul. And if I'm wrong now, 
I don't, I don't believe I'll, I'll lose my soul on it. Now, we're not talking about somebody being willfully wrong and dishonest or anything, but we're talking about somebody just being sincerely wrong on a particular matter. Any other? Uh, you're right. But you know what has always interested, I shouldn't say always, because in my early years of preaching, I was as legalistic and straight down the line uh, as, as anybody could be. And then as I began to, uh, what actually caused me to re-examine my thinking, a lot of that was the division that I saw in the church. We, it just There was no end to the division. And I thought that something has to be wrong when equally sincere people are always dividing. But uh, you can't, uh, it, it was it became interesting when I got into that, is that within our own fellowship, we recognize that we have these differences. And, and we allow people to grow and develop and realize that the grace of God can take care of our unwillful sins and ignorance. But then we don't allow that to people in another situation. In other words, it's like that only from within our own group will we allow that. But then when it steps over to somebody else in another group who believes in the Lord just as strong as we do, has obviously repented of their sins, is obviously a dedicated Christian and all, and yet we say he's wrong on this doctrine or that doctrine, we don't want to allow that person, or have not in the past, the same thing that we claim for ourselves. Uh, and, and, and that is the fact that, uh, that uh, it's one thing to be wrong due to ignorance on some point. It's another thing to say that that person is lost because they happen to be wrong on that, on that particular point. You know, that's a good thing, Alba, on the... Uh, looking at a passage, they, they go to a passage in 1 Corinthians 11, about if you got homes to eat in. And it's, uh, the, the, when you go back and read on the early church, and of course the love feast you read about in the New Testament, when they partook of the Lord's Supper, they had a meal together and partook of the Lord's Supper. And that was their, that's the way they did it. And when Jesus introduced the Lord's Supper, it was at a meal. And they were partaking of the Passover feast, and from the same cup that they were drinking, and from the food that they were eating, he took the bread and broke it, and then he took that. And when you read the writings of the early church fathers and right out of the first century, dealing with the Lord's Supper, they called it their love feast. They came together and had a meal, and then they went ahead and took the Lord's Supper. And apparently in Corinth, uh, what had happened is your more well-to-do affluent Christians were being somewhat selfish, and they were eating the food and all even before some of the others got there, and, and they were putting the emphasis on that more than on partaking the Lord's Supper, and he rebuked them for it. These people, these same people, will tell you, though, that the building has no significance. The contract, right. They'll, I've, got a, I've got a sister that is, and also a grandfather that was in that group, you know, on the, on the Annie thing. And the same thing, they'll, you know, they'll acknowledge these things, and you'll ask them, well, do you believe the building is holy? And they'll say no, but still adhere to that 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 very principle that you said and you can point out to them well you've got uh you've got water in the uh foyer you know what in the world is, is it okay to serve water but not tea you know but it's still they make a make a distinction there where uh where do you draw the line about fellowship we were talking about these areas like dancing and drinking and all that kind of thing but 
uh, on baptism, like uh, the reason for baptism. You know, like some groups baptize for example. They think, you know, believe in salvation before baptism, yeah. you know, and not baptism for the remission of sins. Uh, they're baptized for example. As okay. an example. The, uh, I, all right, for, we're just talking about immersion, right? Because you're just, we're not even, we're just talking about No, we're about not talking about sprinkling. We're just, just talking immersion. about immersion. Okay. My experience in, uh, if you was to read or go to where, say, a, a Baptist church or, or one of the holiness or whatnot immersed, they would read the same scriptures you read. I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. And uh, the person would confess. They'll read uh, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and all. They have no difference with us on immersion and what it stands for. In other words, they know it stands for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that you are picturing your own death, burial, and resurrection and his own death, burial, and resurrection. So they take nothing away from baptism. What causes them to believe what they do really has, uh, has to do with what they believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, they believe that in order for you to repent and believe, that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit has to regenerate your heart. Well, then their argument is you can't have the Holy Spirit and be lost. And so then that it becomes the fruits. Repentance and belief are the fruits of a regenerated heart by the Holy Spirit. And then you go, so the difference is really having nothing to do with baptism. It has to do with the doctrine of total depravity, which all the various Protestant denominations believe, and goes back to John Calvin. And then the regeneration of the heart by the Holy Spirit itself. All right, now, when you look at baptism, the, see, personally, by the way, I'll quote David Lipscomb, and I've got an article in there I just read the other week on David Lipscomb. Uh, David Lipscomb, and also the early people in the Restoration Movement, like Alexander Campbell and all, they did receive in people who had been immersed without them being rebaptized. They left it strictly up to their discretion. They did not require re-immersion uh, on people that had been immersed, uh, they left it strictly up to their conscience. Uh, in fact, when Dave, when Alexander Campbell himself was baptized, it was by a Baptist preacher uh, at, the t at the time. But uh, and he himself, uh, in his early years, was a wrote the material called the uh, Baptist Millennial, and uh, wrote from a Baptist perspective. And so I'm saying the the early what we call the involved in the restoration movement did not demand they demanded that people that had been sprinkled be immersed but they did not demand it alright it was only after the movement became fixed and became a recognized body with a name that they began really to demand this you know the rebat rather than just leave it up to the conscience of the individual David Lipscomb's comment was that uh, whether they understood it or not, that did not stop uh, whatever the Lord did. You know, uh, Alexander Campbell felt the same way. All right, from our standpoint, looking at what the Bible says on salvation, in Romans, the fourth chapter, Paul makes it clear that Abraham was justified by faith before he did one thing. His faith was imputed to him for righteousness. And he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, right? That's in Romans, okay. And then to drive his point home, he says now he was commanded to be circumcised. But was he justified 
before or after circumcision? He says not after, but before. And circumcision was a sign of the righteousness he had in his heart. Well, his offering of Isaac upon the altar took place in uh, Genesis 22. And yet James says that his faith was completed, you know, by his doing that. So I'm saying that when Paul and James deal specifically with Abraham, they tell you he was justified by faith and that the circumcision was a sign of the faith that he had in his heart and that also the, the offering of Isaac was a sign of the faith he had in his heart. Okay, I believe that, that when a person repents of their sins and they put their trust in Christ, those are the essential ingredients. That's what affects your heart. All right, but from God's standpoint, God knows your heart. But now from my standpoint, you may believe in Jesus, but I don't know it until you acknowledge him with your mouth. So from my standpoint, I judge you based on the fruit. And so I cannot accept you until you acknowledge with your mouth that you do believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And so I'm saying necessity itself would demand that. I do not know that you have put your trust in him and identified with his death, burial, and re resurrection and, and recognize those truths until you embrace his command to be immersed into him. And so when I see that, then I see your faith. And so that, uh, that, that it, it, but I'm saying that God knew it when it was in the heart. The thief on the cross what would have happened if he wasn't nailed to that cross and had come to believe in Jesus I mean would he have been immersed in keeping with the teaching that went on at that time in other words everybody John taught was baptized everybody Jesus taught was baptized so there's no question that they would have immersed him because they were everyone in fact to reject John's baptism was to reject John in Luke 7, 38-39. They rejected John by rejecting his baptism. But the thief on the cross was in a situation where he believed in the Lord and he's repented of his sins. But how are we going to baptize him? Well, what everybody uh, says is, well, Jesus can save him if he wanted to. Okay. But he, well, what would be the difference then to now? Well, that's what, I mean, that's my point, but that's what uh, a lot of people say. They'll say that, well, Jesus was alive and he hadn't died yet, and so he could do uh, well, that the same people turn around and say, well, two or three are gathered together, name he's there in their, he's there in their midst. We pray to him. He's as close to your heart. Uh, Jesus is here, whether he's just not in a physical body. And so what would be the difference if a thief on the cross were being killed in Afghanistan right now? And so he, through his study, he had come to believe in Jesus and he had repented of his sins and he can't be baptized. And so there he is begging God to forgive him and putting his trust in the Lord. It's impossible to baptize him. I've always felt that the reason that the thief on the cross was killed, I mean, was uh, saved the way he was is because that's the only way he could save. There was no other alternative. Right. In other words, it's not, it's not an excuse for somebody to come along and say, I'm not going to obey the Lord because of so-and-so. But on the other hand, it's an example there that, that Christians, before they conjure up a situation where they make it impossible for a repentant believer to be saved without doing a physical act, when maybe he cannot obey that physical act. Uh, I actually heard this. This was on a radio program when we were in Jessup, and a preacher in the church was dealing with this question on radio. And the writer asked him, they, the, re, the person wrote into his program, they said, what happens if... Uh, uh, this guy is going to get uh, 
baptized and they were taking him to the baptistry and on his way to the, being baptized, he dies. And so he's repented and believed. His answer was, if two people are going to get married and they have a wreck and are killed, are they married? <laughs> well, see again, that was that is not parallel, you know, on the thing. That uh, what is saved is your spirit. And this guy was going to be baptized and had no choice over what happened. And so I'm saying the, the essential ingredient is in the heart. And all the physical act is, is an expression of what's in the heart. And so that I don't, in other words, I would not receive in a fellowship anybody that refused the command, you know, to be baptized. That, or to even confess with his mouth, Jesus is Lord. But to, where I think that we have done that wrong in the past is to set in judgment on hypothetical situations rather than just say that those people are in the hands of God that uh, I don't know their hearts, like the thief on the cross, you and I would not have known whether he had truly repented or put his trust in Jesus had we been there. We thought, well, maybe he's just scared to die and he's grabbing at straws. But Jesus knew his heart. And so I, that I don't know, I don't think in those situations that you and I can either, that we should either save or lose them. That, uh, that just the statement is that God knows their heart and, and he's in, they're in his hands. Uh, the response might be, well, we're not on the cross, you know. Yeah. Was a thief not under the law of Moses? I mean, was he? Well, he was under the law, but still, uh, uh, how were they saved under the law of Moses? The uh, by grace through faith. But a, not baptism. No, they. Well, John was baptizing. Yeah, John was baptizing. But. Well, it all boils down to whether or not the actual act is what actually imparts forgiveness of sins or not. Yeah, that's, that's, right. that's what it all boils down it, to. It boils down, do, that's, does that's that actual act, or is it your faith and repentance? See, I, I believe that, that the any physical act is only an expression of the heart. And what really counts is the heart. And God knows and that. We God knows your heart. Any act greater than the other? Huh? Are they all equal in importance? Tom, I'm going Any. to have to interrupt because I've got ice cream on the oh, okay. It's going to be melted. Can we all come back or talk in there? Yeah, or? yeah. Okay. The, uh, on the act, uh, I think any command that Jesus gave, that obviously uh, any believer who understands any command he, he's gave is going to want to obey it. And if he doesn't want to, what we're really saying is he's, he doesn't have his trust in him. Or he has to repent. No, it's like Peter saying in 1 Peter uh, 3 21, the, uh, and corresponding to this, how water saved Noah. Right. That magic now also save us, not to remove the dirt from the flesh, but to go to the conscious. Right, through the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Uh, well, somebody can read that and say, well, baptism is the only thing that saves you. Yeah, but look at it. It says just the opposite. There's other things that say you're, you're saved by this, but. They won't take into account the other things that the Bible says. All right. The, it says just exactly the opposite. So it says, Baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the interrogation of a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. He's saying it's you're making your appeal to God for a good conscience through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All right. Then with Noah in the water that he gives right, is it, was it the water that saved Noah or his faith? I mean, the water killed more than it saved, didn't it? Noah's faith caused him to obey God. Now, it was his faith that was the motivating agent that caused him to do certain things, but it was his faith that saved him. 
And, and the same thing with baptism. Peter doesn't want anybody to think that the water saves him. He said it's not the putting away the filth of the flesh. In other words, don't get the idea that the physical act of baptism saves you. It's your appeal to God for a good conscience, and that's what you're doing. You know, you're, you're making your appeal to God for a good conscience. And, and the only way, that's through, the, through his resurrection. How do you die to the flesh? In repentance? When, when you actually repent... That's, when you repent, you if, when you repent, then you are indeed you, you stop sinning. You you're, you're, you turn around in your heart and you're trying to follow. God All repentance is a change of mind, right? Well, then it's a question that Mark said: Where did the forgiveness of the sins come from? I'm not saying God doesn't have the power to do that. I'm just okay. You know, it's like in Romans. Okay, the when Paul deals with it specifically in Romans. Paul is teaching over and over and over that you're saved by grace through faith, right? And he, he, he becomes so specific on it, he makes it clear that, that Abraham, in other words, what physical act did Abraham go through that affected his salvation? What physical act was involved in Abraham's salvation? He tells you that, that whether he was circumcised or given Isaac, that what you actually saw was the fruits of faith. And that showed that he had faith. But it was the faith itself. Your, it is your, your repentance and your faith in Christ. But now, see, nobody is, pardon me, is going to get out of anything because to say that a person is repentant of his sins and put his faith in Jesus and then comes to a command and say, hey, I'm not going to obey that, what is that really saying? Has he repented? Has he really repented or put his faith in Jesus? He hasn't. So that's why that, uh, for example, you would, re re if somebody said, uh, well, I want to be a part of the church here, but I absolutely refuse to be baptized. Well, then that person, how have they put their faith in Christ if they reject the very first command he gives them? Uh, that, uh, that obviously, they don't. And so, see, I believe the, the need for baptism is not from God's standpoint, it's from our standpoint. God knows the heart, but you and I can only see the fruits. And, and Jesus told us, like on false prophets or false teachers, God knows they're false before they open their mouth. But you and I have to look at the fruits, and so Jesus told us to look at fruits. So, I, I have no way of knowing that you believe in Jesus unless you acknowledge with your mouth that you do. And then when I see you being immersed into him, I can see, well, when, when you in humility... Submit to that. Are you sure? I can't believe these people. Then I can see that, you know. And so that, but, and that's the only way I would have of knowing. And, and uh, see, I believe that baptism is an extremely important rite because I think the same mind that would reject baptism would reject any other thing they differed with. And they're really not walking by faith at all. And I believe the same person that would accept and do what the Lord said for the reason I think they will they will accept any other command they understand also. Can you use uh, something that, that I've done in my mind, I'm not really sure if it's theologically correct or whatever is that you know in, in Romans two when it's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews and referring to circumcision, is it I mean can could you hypothetically you know, like relate that to our to to us today interject baptism in, in place of circumcision and you, you see what I'm saying? All right, I, all right from my standpoint, okay. see a lot in the church, Mark, will 
will do the other. They make it different. I I believe baptism is a parallel to, to circumcision. Okay, that's what not I a, not a complete parallel. Right. Not a complete. Right. For example, ladies obviously were not, and and it was done as a baby. You know, it was a sign of the covenant. But it was a physical act that that showed that they had embraced the covenant with Israel. All right. Now, what if Abraham had rejected circumcision? He would have rejected the covenant. Could a Jew who believed in God reject circumcision? No, they could him out of the camp. He couldn't. Right. So, the, but yet Paul says he was saved before he was circumcised. The point is, the obeying of of the command was a demonstration of his trust and in his faith. And so, I'm saying for the physical act is never important to God on something like that. I mean, those little rites like that. They're important to us as, as, as human beings because we can only see the faith in the action. God knows it when it's in the heart. And so in our fellowship, when we hear a person acknowledge with his mouth, Jesus is Lord, and when he embraces that command, and, and we can see how that command pictures a death, burial, and resurrection, then we can embrace and we know he has faith and everything. But we don't know anything until we actually actually see that take place. Where did some churches get the idea that they have the right to vote people in the congregation. Um, let them be baptized after they vote. Where it really started in the, like I know from the, the David, from what I've read, that it went back uh, during a time of segregation. And you could see, you could keep blacks or whoever you wanted out of your group. In other words, they, the interesting thing is, these people would admit that they could be saved but still, they had to vote them in to their particular group. Uh, a black person could have gone to a white Baptist church uh, all anywhere in the 60s and all that and, and tried to become a member. They would not have accepted him. He would not have been. I'm talking about a number of, the, of, of churches. They would not have accepted him or voted him in. But, believe it or not, not too many years back, a lot of churches of Christ also would not have, they say they don't vote, but they would not have accepted a black man as a member. When I went to Freed Hardman College in 1958 and 59, it was a Christian school for white people. And in fact, that's how I got involved in the civil rights movement while I was there. See, I, I differed with that and, and spoke out against it and got in, involved in the movement itself. But it was a Christian school for white people. The church there did not have blacks in it. Barbara and I was at a church in Nashville in the 60s when a black family came there and they really come to visit the preacher there had preached in Louisville, Kentucky before he moved there and they were friends of his. And so they had stopped in to visit and the elders met them at the church and, and showed them where the black church was and let them know that they, they would not receive them in there. So I'm saying that on the one hand we didn't vote in but they did that, that same thing. I'm saying that when they talk about right and wrong on doctrines, it's only been uh, going back to the 60s and the vast majority of the white churches of Christ would not have received a black person in, 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 in membership. So in that case, you just have to leave Well, they vote now, but I, I don't, I've never heard of anybody no. in the Baptist churches around where I I mean, it's almost just like a technicality or no, something. No, it was something to keep blacks out, really. Like I said, during now, segregation. now, you know, but now they vote still, but it's like everybody gets voted in. Right. You know, it's like I can't imagine. Or, it's a formality. Right. It's a formality. It's a tradition that they've kind of yeah. carried over or something. Uh, 
Yeah, right. It's just it, it started for a particular reason. The the tradition carried on. The reason for it was lost. And by the way, there's any number of traditions that way where the the tradition carries on and the reason they did it is lost in the process. What but I'd say uh, that they would they wouldn't vote you in if you would disagree with their doctrinal points that they right. based their fellowship on. Right. Just like good as Brother Cameron. Right. Uh, well, Brother Cameron. Hey, Mark, well, you're, he's an older man, up in his 80s now. You've never, I've never okay. met him. I've heard you speak. I've him. But. All right, Brother Cameron, <clears throat> Seventh-day Adventist, he and his wife. <clears throat> and, and Jack and I studied with him years past, and he came over here for a number of years. And so anyway, in fact, we still correspond. Through studying and all, he became convinced that Ella G. White was just a, a woman, she was not a prophetess, and that they were wrong on that. And so he spoke out in their services and all against her. And so the end result is they will not allow him to be a member of the church. All right, now, 